I don't know, should I welcome... I'll do a welcome. You're the host. Yeah, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the host. Welcome one and all to the inaugural uh, Progression podcast. This is the first one we've ever done. This is going to be an experiment. Uh, please bear with Austin and I as we work out how podcasting works uh, and all the foibles and technical issues that come with it. There have already been several. The podcast aims to, I suppose, reveal some of the uh, tricks and tools that people who have been thinking about this for many, many more years than I have, uh, find out more about how they're working, tackle some of the big issues around growing at work. How do you think about your career over a period of time, maybe longer than any one company can, can help you think about it or is in their interest to do so? How do you think about going into management versus staying with your craft? How do you weigh up where your skills sit against your peers and against people in other industries? Uh, how do you know how much you should be paid? All that kind of hard stuff really isn't talked about very much and it's there's probably a certain amount of, um, it's difficult to talk about because it's more personal than how do you create your design system? which is something that objectively we can all comfortably learn in the open. Austin, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure, I'll jump in. Um, first of all, thanks for having me uh, for the first podcast. It's an honor to be a part of it. Um, I've been, I'm an avid podcast listener, so this is a really uh, kind of cool and fun way to, to play around with it in a no-pressure environment, because I suppose all the pressure's on you to uh, get this right. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so thanks for that opportunity. Um, also, yeah, just to talk about this stuff. I mean, we had a conversation around a week ago about, you know, design, management, careers, etc. And we'll dig into the detail, but I find this an endlessly fascinating topic. Um, so as far as my background, uh, I'm a designer and educator. Um, so I'm currently teaching a lot at General Assembly, but I also teach uh, at individual companies, so working with a company called Shipstead, which is a large publisher in Scandinavia, um, on a pretty big project recently, delivering an education program for their management trainees. Um, yeah, and I, I also do a lot of client work. Um, so I kind of, I went freelance a couple of years ago and said yes to too much work and accidentally kind of created a small business. And I'm trying to decide, you know, do I actually want to manage the process of design? How much do I want to manage the process versus how much do I want to keep designing myself? Um, and I think, you know, in my personal journey, I'm reaching this stage where I'm deciding, okay, uh, you know, where do I focus my time and efforts? Is it, you know, digging into the nitty gritty, pushing pixels around, getting really into research, or would I rather, you know, create a team, you know, be in charge of a team in house? Um, so yeah, I'm interested on the education side, uh, teaching. And also just my personal journey, it's kind of like, I don't, you know, I feel like naturally I should ascend into, you know, management oblivion, but I, I'm not ready to do that. I feel like I've got, you know, some gas in the tank to actually create stuff. Um, so that's kind of been my own introspective journey. But as far as a tool for helping out students, um, that, I mean, that's, you know, massive pain point for me after teaching over 3000 students, a lot of them get back in touch with me and say, hey, uh, can you help me out? I have a career crisis or I want to you know, talk about my next step. And, you know, it's tough because I want to help everyone out. And this made a lot more sense years ago when I had less people to help. Um, and it's a really cool platform 
And now I'm just trying to think about how do I do this at scale? Because a lot of times the first 30 minutes of the conversation is, well, what are you good at? What are you doing now? Um, and I'd rather just know that from the jump so I can actually you know, focus on the future with, um, with former students, uh, yeah, colleagues, et cetera. So that's kind of where I'm at personally, introspectively, and also um, you know, how I plan to hopefully uh, use uh, like progression as a tool um, to really help out you know, other designers um, who get in touch. I just want those conversations to be as useful as possible because we're both spending our time on it, right? Um, so anyway, so that's, yeah, that's me. I think, I mean, in broad strokes, I think I covered what I'm up to, but, uh, but we'll dig into more stuff throughout the conversation, I imagine. Yeah, completely. Uh, and it's, it, 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 uh, uh, straight away, you've touched on something that definitely is off script, and we need to be careful that this first episode doesn't stretch to a couple of hours. Also got a flight to catch. So. <laughs> but uh, wait, wait, where are you going? Uh, headed to Barcelona. Okay. This afternoon. So, um, a pleasure, not business. Okay. Uh, going for a wedding. Cool. Well, we'll get uh, we'll, we'll get you out of here. Yeah. Well, I'll leave. You know, I I will leave it to you to focus the conversation because um, I I inevitably will take it in all kinds of directions. So so yeah. I suspect we. We'll be the blind leading the blind here, so we'll we'll see we'll see where we go. But I just wanted to uh, actually talk a little bit. You you the the word that you used introspection is so important and something that I've been thinking about a lot. I've actually in the even in the last few days talked to two or three designers who are earlier on in their careers, and and introspection has has come up in conversation so much. I think I I wonder if the trend that it's fairly easy to track around being more self-aware, being more focusing on wellness as well, but but thinking really about what do you enjoy, what do you get energy from at work and what do you not enjoy, and balancing that against this expectation that, well, when I get to a certain number of years of experience, then I have to go into management, and then when I, um, I need to tick off all these job titles, otherwise I'm failing and look at all my peers and some of them are now head of design somewhere or whatever the thing is that you kind of uh, these extrinsic things that you're measuring your success against balancing that against something that's more intrinsic and thinking about what you actually enjoy it's really important to be conscious of that and not sleepwalk into something that you didn't really expect or design yourself to be doing every week if you look at your week and you're not excited about it even if it is the job title that you aim to to get to, maybe you should rethink and 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 draw one of those lovely tables where you have pros and cons of what you're working on and and really have a think about what the what the next step is for you rather than just for the perception of you on your social network of choice anyway, that is definitely a topic for probably almost every podcast we do because it's such a big one, but um maybe a different day, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to jump into it, or we can jump to something else because I've already got something in mind. But uh, yeah, I, no, no, feel free to reel it in. I mean, I will say that I'll finish it, but just saying that, like, I do require like all my students, regardless of the course. So whether it's a course, a course I'm teaching at a company, or a you know purely educational experience like a general assembly, uh, to do like a design profile exercise where you know I have these quadrants. You've got strategy, interaction design, information architecture and research. And I'm like, just physically draw yourself, you know, on this canvas. Like, where are you now? Uh, and that establishes, okay, your baseline. And then it's, okay, where, 
do you want to go? So maybe you don't know much about interaction design, but you really want to learn more. So you draw like a huge arrow to indicate, you know, where you want to go. And this is borrowing on some models by uh, Jason Mezud and Warren Hutchinson. Um, uh, and I've kind of tweaked it and made it my own. But the only challenge is they take this, you know, sheet of paper away uh, and it's not evolving with them. And I think the cool thing about what you're doing is that you're creating an artifact that can travel with the designer uh, from company to company as well. Like it's not purely dependent on, you know, this static artifact that sits on some hard drive somewhere or, you know, a piece of paper, which I use for my classes. And I think that this introspective journey, like it's really useful to see according to yourself where you're at and what you like doing. Because a lot of times you can't help anyone or help yourself if you don't even know what you're good at or like doing. You know, the, the whole passion conversation is kind of a silly one because I, well, some people find their passion and they're great. They're like comic book artists at the age of 12 and they've figured it out. For everyone else, I think passion comes once you feel useful. So it's like, how do we find stuff that we're uniquely capable of doing and, you know, find a place to apply those skills. So I, you know, again, I'm, I'm fairly, I don't know much about like exactly what you're building, but I'm kind of convinced that there's a space for it. Um, but anyways, that's, anyway, my, the whole point was to, that all of that requires an, an activity, like a forced activity of introspection, because it's kind of like, how, you know, it's really hard to do, especially when you're in these markets like London that are moving so fast to just stop and be like, wait, who am I, <laughs> you know, as a designer, uh, or even more metaphysically, however far you want to take it, but like, who am I as a designer? What am I good at? How can I be useful? Where should I go do that? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but anyways, cool. Fingers crossed. Well, I'm one uh, data point. Maybe well, I'm crazy too, so who knows? But, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, maybe we're two crazy people talking <laughs> to each other, but that's, that's okay, I suppose. We'll find out. There are some problems in this world that are exacerbated or introduced by new technologies or socioeconomic shifts. There are others that are perennial. Working next to, communicating with, and leading others in shared goals is a skill as old as us homo sapiens. In fact, it could be seen as our one defining characteristic. Our species overcame great odds and built every piece of technology we have today through our ability to motivate and fire the imaginations of ever-increasing numbers of people around us. Our ability to imagine a better future for ourselves, to tell and enjoy stories, to place trust in people we don't share blood with, has led to everything from global religion and the formation of states and regimes to the more mundane everyday efficiencies afforded by not having to watch your own back. The current political landscape is a perfect case in point. Through storytelling and personality-driven leadership, every cultural and social so societal thank you, norm can be flipped on its head. Humans are indeed strange and easily manipulated. In the professional context, we might call this responsibility to lead and drive others management. It has a kind of stuffy corporate feel to it, reflected in the literature you'll find when trying to learn best practices. White men in suits standing with their arms crossed in generic, hard-to-apply books. Despite this, there's an allure to managing others. For some, there's a huge amount of joy and satisfaction in that ability to nurture, to guide, and to grow other humans. But for others, the power imbued and implied by the job description is the attraction. This is important because knowing what drives you as a leader is likely core to understanding whether you'll be any good at it. Everyone will have bad manager stories. The fact is, many who end up managing others aren't driven by the deep desire to guide, but more either a desire for power or status. And it's completely understandable when that power and status carries kudos and such a large difference in pay. 
For this reason, we may never manage to achieve a 100% hit rate on nat natural managers. While there exists a visible stature to management, the people who are best at the component parts won't ever consistently make it to those positions. What I believe we can achieve instead is the best possible set of tools to allow any manager, whether they're born for it or forced into it, to do the best possible job for their teams and organisations at large. It's through this lens of a reluctant manager, and I suppose that, that to, to break out of this, the reluctant manager is kind of my persona for this, but really interested in opinions about whether that's a fair persona. Um, it's through this lens of a reluctant manager that it's most useful to view this set of resources. The reluctant manager has their team's best intentions at heart. They definitely aren't sociopathic or cruel, and chances are they're well liked. But they also struggle to maintain energy levels throughout a day of people-focused challenges. Some of the activities they know they should be putting more energy into they find hard to build a passion for. Possibly they miss being involved in the work, and sometimes themselves find themselves drawn back into it. They volunteer to take on strategic projects, not because they're best placed, but to give them a break from their actual jobs. They fail to truly prepare for one-to-ones and team-facing activities. For sure it's a shock to the system if you've most recently been creating things yourself. I'm comfortable saying, for example, that during my time managing others, my enjoyment of management was more academic. I never got energy from one-to-ones and interpersonal situations, but was always interested in organisational efficiency, getting people into the correct teams, meeting the people who would help them grow. I struggled to square away the fact that some of the vital parts of being a manager would drain me, but the art of management still fascinate me. For the first time manager of any team, you're basically left to your own devices. If you've previously been a maker, for example, a designer or an engineer, this is a double whammy. Wait, so I don't get to create anymore and I have to sit in meetings and talk about feelings and culture. So, why progression pack? As a manager, one thing on your plate at some point will be deciding what good looks like. What defines a senior designer? What qualities go into managerial potential? How can team members tell where they stand? Doing this fairly across a team is hard. It takes weeks of filling in squares in your spreadsheet, getting buy-in from those around you, running it by the team, tweaking to make sure it's actionable. And when you're done, you're left with a tool that still can't track progress and still kind of looks like a spreadsheet. Your one-to-one -one conversation isn't any easier. Goals are hard to set, progress hard to measure. You simplify the framework but leave out important details which allows for misinterpretation. Gradually, it's left on a shelf while you resort to ad hoc judgment calls on competency and levelling. Now imagine being a designer in that team. There's nowhere to look to understand how to improve. And as the team grows, new, ever more senior job titles appear above you. You're working hard and hustling, but with every step forwards, the goalposts move two steps away from you. Suddenly, LinkedIn pings. The job title you wanted with a nice sal salary bump. Right there for the taking. From the company across the street. Why wouldn't you take it? We have hundreds of tools to move pixels, design interactions, and now increasingly turn our designs into code, but there's still no toolkit for managers. Spreadsheets aren't good enough. They underserve managers, who in turn underserve their teams. I want us to do better. So that's kind of the, the introduction. Um, that's probably taken, oh, that's five minutes, that's all right. <laughs> I was wondering whether we would, we should just cut it all out. <laughs> I feel like I should clap. I mean, that was good. It's all right, man. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't have tons of holes to poke in the poke in the argument because a lot of, um, you know, what you're describing, I've I've been on both sides of that 
interaction and relationship, both the kind of manager and the managed maker, so to speak. Um, the, you know, the one thing I, I think I challenge you to do is, and this is one thing I really like doing and that I've been getting really into lately um, from an education standpoint uh, and trying to bring it into offices as well is, you know, getting to first principles. So when I hear a term, I want to think kind of go over the top and break it down to, you know, its most fundamental parts. I kind of got this first principle thinking, um, uh, you know, it's been popularized by Elon Musk. He talks a lot about this, where you need to kind of have the, the trunk of the idea before you can like hang, you know, more detailed ideas off the leaves. And I think a lot of people um, come into my classes and they already have the leaves. They understand the leaves. So they'll talk about, you know, design thinking or they'll, they'll want to talk about a design tool. And then I, I want to say without being too, uh, you know, too academic or spending, you know, too much time in kind of esoteric thought thinking like, okay, well, can we define what an interface is? You know, what is an interface? Because we use the word a lot, but like it's, you know, it's the point of contact between a human and a system. And the interface itself evolves. You know, we had GUIs and the came around in the 80s and we used mount, you know, like a mouse to click or a trackpad. You know, now we're touching our phones. We have that interface. Now we have a lot of voice interface. But to kind of, and you know, I won't spend too, tons of time on it here defining interface, but like just thinking, what is this thing? Um, and I was thinking like, you know, what is a manager? And like, why, like, what are they managing? And why do they exist? And, you know, what is, for example, progress? If, if we're talking about for designers specifically, like how do we define progress? Like, is it people doing what they want to do? Is it making more money? Is it, uh, I mean, it's probably a mixture of all these things, but I think, you know, some first principle thinking, like it's probably very clear in your head, but maybe for, you know, as an exercise, it'd be an interesting one. And I'm not gonna put you on the spot to like deconstruct these right now, but I don't know, like, what do you think in general of that? I think I think you're I think you're right, and actually you've <coughs> you've Austin, you struck to the core of me. Uh, <laughs> so I, soon. Actually, er, earlier you mentioned uh, Jason Masut, and, and uh, he last week. Jason is a fantastic uh, design leader. Thinks very deeply about design skills and the kind of mapping the design skill set. Um, is very vocal about that. Has some great articles. Of, Maybe we should link to in the show notes. Yeah. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> <Cool>. But, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, one thing he sent me was, uh, I, I forget the name of it, but effectively a, a very short personality test. And, you know, we've all done the kind of Myers-Briggs and all these kind of different personality tests. I always like trying a new one, but it splits you into six. It's very focused on how you act at work. Uh, I'll see if I can find it, and if there's a public version of it, then I, uh, I can share that. But it put me in a category, and it broadly said uh, that your failing is often that you assume that people know as much as you do, or, or have followed your thought process and are kind of already there with you. And definitely throughout the last few years of my career, I've repeatedly become aware of uh, not taking enough time to explain where my head's at so I'll come out with something that I think is brilliant because I've taken the 10 steps to get there and, and not everyone else will go but <laughs> what uh, what are you even talking about um, so as, as a, an observation on me it's very astute I think that um, 
yeah so that for me the ba i suppose the balance within kind of writing this stuff is i have to assume that i have a fairly educated audience or, or at least people can fairly quickly recognize problems or shared problems from from what i'm writing if that's not the case then that's definitely something i need to learn uh, but also uh, brevity i'm interested in as well because I, this is going to be an uh, an ebook rather than a physical book i think all of that doesn't help with being able to really sit down and crank through 30,000 words uh, you need you need something that's going to get to the point fairly quickly that said uh, simple language is also important and i'm not a writer i'm kind of learning how to do this but but um, well to jump in like i think i think what you wrote was pretty clear um and you know i'm not completely putting the onus on you to define these terms like i think uh i think it could come from the community that you're building you know like what do we like why do managers exist in organizations like and you know specifically in design and also you know what is progress like for a designer like what do people want um and the goal i mean that goalpost is kind of moving um you're not with i know they're moving within organizations but it's also just moving in general um you know as uh as we value different things but yeah so i think you know i think what you wrote was pretty clear and i think you know a lot of it resonated I was just trying to find something to challenge you on. And I think, you know, a next step could be, you know, how do we as a community, you know, I mean, maybe take a stab at it yourself, like how you define it and then think, you know, but, and, and that's a good starting place for a conversation, you know, put the flag in the sand and say, Hey, you know, I'm going to paint the picture of my ideal manager, um, you know, who's optimally effective at doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, what do you think? Is this what you want out of a manager? I think that's a really interesting conversation. And, I think it's even interesting to go even deeper and think about like why do organizations have hierarchies at all? You know, there's been a lot of attempts to flatten organizations and people say it kind of like, uh, you know, like it's a good thing. Like we have a very flat organization um, and maybe it is, uh, but you also think about why hierarchies exist in society at all. Like why do we have like prime ministers, you know, like, uh, why do, you know why do we have senators and you know people in politics and people that are you know atop you know some hierarchy that we've built and you know it, it there's a lot of I, I should reference someone smarter than me because I got this idea from somewhere but I don't remember where I got it but basically uh, like creative people generally people on the left of the political spectrum it's like generalization um, you know prefer this like flat kind of hierarchy. Um, and generally speaking, like people who prefer like a steep hierarchy are on, on the more conservative end of the spectrum. So, you know, people who prefer flat hierarchies, they're usually good at making things, both like design and also starting companies, but they're really bad at running them. So it's kind of this weird paradox. And you see this all the time where like a startup founder, all of a sudden it goes public and then they're replaced by some adult, you know, who's more conservative and can run the company. And it's just quite funny that there are you know, two types of people, but in a lot of times in the design world, the same person is asked to be both people depending on where they are in their career. Like they're, you know, they're, right. they're supposed to be progressive and creative and then, right. you know, they graduate and then at one point they're supposed to manage the process or they're supposed to somehow yeah. empower creative work. But like, that's a totally different skill set. And I think like, even think about the first principles of hierarchies, management, progress like how do we define all this or like why does it exist i right. think is uh, super interesting 
I think a, a, one of the big conversations that I'm hoping that we can tackle, which isn't necessarily directly uh, my focus, but is so pertinent and so important. Uh, and actually, there's been some great writing about this. For example, Cap Watkins, who's the um, ex-VP of design at BuzzFeed, wrote something last week towards how to decide when and if to become a manager and underst really understanding the trade-offs that you're making mm -hmm. at the point at which you do that. And a mistake that so many companies make is they choose their best maker, their best IC, individual contributor, and they say, well, you're the most senior person on the team, so you should be the manager. And then you're hitting yourself twice. You're, you're taking away the best resource you have for actually getting things out the door and you're turning them and clearly because they're the best chances are that that is really where they get energy from and you're removing all of the things that they love and you're taking yeah. you're taking their skill set away from the team but you're also asking them to do a set of things that a they may well be ill prepared for b may not be things that they enjoy at all so that's a, it, it again the paradox there is Possibly you should be looking for people who aren't necessarily the most senior, but ironically are less good at the craft or less able to get into flow and uh, crank out amazing things because chances are they're going to be the people that are more interested in other people and having the good conversations and working out how to empower others. And It's definitely not going to be an exact correlation, but there's, there's going to be some... There's, there's uh, things to look for in that pool of resources that, that people probably often overlook because they're not doing the shiny things and getting the credit for their existing work. No, definitely. And I think, I think that the big question there is then how do we value, uh, how do we value these individuals both, you know, like from a community standpoint and also, you know, monetarily. So for example, as a, as a, you know, as a designer who's cracking out amazing design, you know, where do they sit in this hierarchy that is the organization and also the wider design community? You know, everyone wants to uh, obviously be a senior this or a lead that or a head of whatever. Um, and, you know, we do kind of value that. Like, I'm sure if you just put designer on your LinkedIn, you know, like maybe, I don't know, like there's a street cred issue involved, which leads to monetary compensation, which, you know, so how do we actually change the culture and you see this at some organizations. Like I know at Google, they really value engineers. I think they're the highest paid people in the organization, aside from like the board or something like this. Um, don't fact check me on that. But I feel like there's uh, kind of that culture. Um, but I don't see it in many places. The, a lot of places, the assumption is the word manager means higher in the hierarchy, um, which comes with the commensurate respect and compensation. So. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't know. What have you seen out there? What do you think? I think that I think that you're exactly right, and I, I think that um, it's it's something that's so per pervasive and sits outside even the discipline of design or engineering. It sits outside any one company culture so much that it will be very hard to shift. And the importance, and and actually, it's not an obvious. It's very easy to say, well. You know, if everyone was just a designer and then we, we found some other way to kind of measure measure quality, then that would solve all the problems. Because actually sitting as two white males, uh, 
in privileged positions, we probably could get away with calling ourselves designers on LinkedIn and then uh, you know, the, the opportunities wouldn't necessarily dry up. But for people who are, I suppose, from underrepresented groups or definitely there, there's been conversations in places that I've worked at before around removing the junior title and the junior title can be useful and titles in general that denote seniority can be useful for people who wouldn't necessarily or who would otherwise be discriminated against so for example if you're an engineer sitting in a uh, and you're female and you're sitting in a room full of men and your title is engineer then chances are those men unfortunately will assume that you're more junior than you are whereas if you had the title of senior overtly and, and explicitly then that helps you to, to to be taken more seriously. This is a, this is a narrative that I've heard before. I think it's I think it's definitely something that needs to be considered when thinking about, I suppose, titling up and having kind of uh, explicit titles that denote seniority. The challenge is really leveling across organisations and across industries. You really just can't put too much faith in. You can't equate a, a title to any level of skills or abilities, really. Right. Especially as you'll find that a, a five-person startup will, will, the head of design at a five-person startup will look very different to the head of design at Google. Right. So. Yeah, totally. And and also, I mean, there's a natural tendency as well with the agency model. Um, you know, obviously, an agency model you're selling or a consultancy model you're selling, you know, your employee's time to a client. And you know how much you can sell that person for depends a lot on the perceived expertise of that person. So I think you know very quickly people accelerate to you know senior designer because that means the company can charge a you know like a similar rate, right? And so and also it's partially that it's not like all nefarious. A lot of it's just that they want to match the hierarchies of the client. So you know they'll have they'll like if they need someone to communicate with the head of marketing. A head of marketing at some, you know, ABC corporation doesn't necessarily want to talk to a junior designer, right? So the, just the perception there is like, why am I having this, you know, conversation with someone who sits, you know, so beneath me in the hierarchy. So, that, so naturally they'll want to like push people up the hierarchy within their small organization so they can match the hierarchy of their client's organization. So you have, you know, it, it's it's really all very arbitrary. There's fantastic uh, designers everywhere, and there's you know people who probably you know need to brush up on some stuff. Um, and then there's the other issue is just because you had 20 years of experience, does that make you good? Maybe you have 20 years of bad habits. Like I you know that's another. It's it's a real. I mean it's a real mess really and uh and it, it's the good and bad about design that we have to show our work you know it is a it is a meritocracy to a certain extent like more so than other industries which is actually quite cool um and i think it's necessary because you know we are we are making stuff that ends up out into the world and there should be some quality assurance <laughs> that we're making decent stuff um but yeah it's 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 tough right like uh yeah i don't know should we should we get onto onto the state of design education for adults? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, what's before I? I mean, I got a lot to say on this. So before I go off on some monologue, 
um, what's your impression? Like, what what institutions are you do you see out there that you're impressed with, or that you think are doing good work, or like, how do you think, how do you perceive um, this industry of you know education for adults, so reskilling outside of the traditional uh, academic sphere? So. I could also go on, on a fairly long rant about this from a, a very different angle because previous to progression, well the progression stuff that I'm working on, I was actually quite focused on boot camps and specifically engineering boot camps and, and ROI and really trying to understand what the value was there and, and how the money flowed and what the future of, of those were. So I ended up talking to a whole bunch of, uh, for example in London, talking to makers and talking to General Assembly people there and yep. Lawagon and, and stuff like that and broadly I've I walked away quite bullish that the outcomes for an engineer are good uh, it, just purely in terms of ROI so you if you look at the economics like you, you you're gonna pay 10 grand or whatever it is to do the course you're gonna have to quit your job because it's immersive three months yeah you're then gonna be spat out the other end and you've got obviously limited amount of time or maybe you have more time if you, if you really have a, a kind of a generous uh, amount of savings that you're comfortable to sit on while you work out how to to move move into a different career but for most people there's an urgency then to to get another job so that they can start earning again yeah so all all in you're talking about tens of thousands of pounds or dollars spent to go through one of these processes but and, and it's it's very small sample set and really hard to know whether we were um, whether it was fair fair tests but broadly everyone was very comfortable with with the fact that they knew the risks going in in fact it is for sure it's self-selecting because there's selection bias because all of these people had the money up front and were c comfortable with the risk but for those people that for whom it is, they are miserable in their jobs or, or whatever the thing is, they need a career change. They can't necessarily afford the risk. There's dependencies in their lives and or, or they don't have the savings to be able to jump. The risk is very high and there are no guarantees for the most part. There are interesting Lambda course and things like that, Lambda school, sorry, in the States that help people to finance that stuff. But the risk is great. And to get to, to design, broadly through talking to a bunch of people coming out of UX courses, uh, UX short courses versus engineering ones, the outcomes were worse, uh, was just the impression that I got. And I think that's partly probably that, I don't know if there's a certain amount of protectionism within design, you know, if you're, it, it's impossible to learn everything in three months and uh, I reject you outright because of your, because your background is a boot camp. Um, there's but also the skill set is much more nebulous yeah. and it looks so different in every company that you're going to work for that it's much harder to know whether the person that you're looking at can actually achieve the things that you want them to achieve and real world experience is arguably more important or, or very important as part of developing that skill set so that's that's my my hot take cool um, <laughs> no no that that's a, i mean it's good like i i uh, you know, I don't have a hard and fast opinion on, you know, if I had to say, you know, uh, one week design course, good, bad, you know, it's, it's like, 
it depends you know it's a it's a big it depends because you're dealing with individuals with very complex and kind of rich you know personal situations um i will say that you know i wouldn't keep teaching if i didn't feel like it was adding value so I have seen now, you know, tons of students and I've worked in corporates and also in, you know, education settings like um, General Assembly and really the level of kind of positivity that I see after a course is just immense. Like I keep doing it. Um, I keep teaching just because of kind of the emotional, emotional and intellectual energy I get out of uh, doing this stuff. And that is um, not necessarily, I don't know, I can teach in a corporate environment, for example, and I don't get that same level of kind of momentum and passion and intellectual energy. So I think for me, I'm convinced of the value. Uh, with that said, it's hard to say, you know, the exact ROI, so if you invest, you know, two grand for you know a short course or 10 grand for a long course like do you make that money back i think that depends a lot on the individual although i will say maybe it's survivalship bias like maybe i just hear from the people who survive and they come back to me and say hey i'm doing great but i also hear from a lot of people who are you know struggling after the course and they need to find a job and then they finally find find one and you know generally speaking i'd say and again maybe this is just the bias maybe there's a ton of people who never contact me again and they've you know, really suffering <laughs> and, uh, for whatever reason, but they, you know, I, I've seen so many positive stories and I have so many like positive memories of people like legitimately, you know, not, not always doing a full scale change of their career, but having like fantastic learning experience for even if it's just a week. And I think it depends on what people want out of that course. So, you know, the longest formats right now that I've taught are three months. Uh, immersive and you know the sales team I think is pretty good about explaining this but I definitely explain it as an instructor like it's a three-month course but actually you know with pre-work the two months beforehand and the month after where you're pulling your portfolio together and applying for jobs it's really minimum like a six-month journey and that's like the start you know so I think a lot of people think it's like you start the first day of class and you finish the last day of class and I'm like no like there's a six month kind of dramatic transformation and that's literally just the beginning of your story arc, right? And, uh, and so I think if you zoom out and look at it from that perspective, it's a really healthy perspective. And if you think about, well, education is pretty expensive, um, not in all places. I mean, I'm in Germany, for example, it's, uh, it's not too expensive, but in a lot of these markets where they operate, um, it's you know education's fairly expensive in the states primarily and then you've got some other you know major markets like london and uh, at least for in-person education and you know really the only logical thing to do if something's expensive is to get it done as quickly as possible so you can jump back into the job market so i think this kind of immersive accelerated intense uh learning experience actually makes sense and i think that um i think you can learn you know, 80% of what you would learn in a four-year program. Maybe, you know, you don't have quite as much time to apply it, so maybe you come out with some rough edges, but I do think that there's a massive value in time boxing. Um, and yeah, 
So there's, so I see a ton of value in it. I do think some people, for example, want to change their career. 10K sounds too expensive. So they spend 2K on like a week course and then they like change their title. And you know, that's, and then I think then they get hired somewhere and then someone realizes that they don't really know what they're doing. And then there's kind of this disillusionment with the whole process. So I think that it is a tool that can be uh, used properly or misused. And you know, the way it's used is, you know, highly dependent on the individual. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think it's, you know, I think a lot of the principles though are there. Like we have to figure out how to teach stuff without going through the rigorous process of academic credentialing, which takes like, you know, years to get. So by the time you, your curriculum gets approved at a university, it's like pretty much out of date in a lot of instances. Um, and we have to figure out how to give people, like, I think an immersive experience, a time boxed experience where you're in a room with a bunch of people trying to like better yourself i just can't think of too many downsides to that um with that said you know there's some people who come in with zero context in digital and design and then they try to get a job in digital and design and it's probably not honestly enough time for them and so they enter the job market with you know not just some rough edges but like no edges at all, you know, like they're kind of an amoeba and they float into the job market, you know, and like no one knows what to make of them. But somehow like a lot of, a lot of them get hired anyways, which is, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, good on you, you know? Um, but I do think we have to be careful with that, you know, like, uh, we, we, I don't know, I want people to feel useful. You know, I think that's where satisfaction and passion and all that comes from. And I don't want anyone to go get a job where they feel overwhelmed or not useful. Um, and you know yeah yeah you're you're putting you're put, uh, if you compare the the uh, i suppose opportunity cost or, or time cost of a three or four year degree and the actual cost of a three or four year degree versus the cost of even a of a three month immersive boot camp plus two years and uh maths two years and nine months of working in the real world I would put money on the person who had done the boot camp and then two years nine months of real world experience to be in a much better position to add value to a company at that point the challenge is and and they won't have as much debt so alongside the whole fact that university is fun and actually helps you grow as a person which I do believe to be true the challenge is more when someone comes out of a boot camp they need to join a company that is going to continue to support and nurture their development and not just see them as a junior who they can fire off on small projects uh, and and the real the real shame is when i suppose a, a newly cut very inexperienced or zero experienced designer gets put in an environment where there's no learning about learning opportunities for them there's no senior person to sit above them there's no um mentorship available to them and the company isn't investing in their growth yeah because that's that's just a i suppose that's a, a surefire way to have a disillusioned employee and an employee who isn't really adding value as well yeah and i mean another thing you know at the beginning of every class i always tell people this is a great place to ask all the questions that you felt too stupid to ask when you're working um you know because we're all paid to be experts i think especially as you ascend this hierarchy and you all of a sudden are a senior designer, but maybe you actually have a print design background and you have no idea what anyone's talking about. And like somewhere along the way you added UX to your title 
because you realize you could like double your day rate. Um, and so then people come on this course and they're kind of almost ashamed. They're like, I'm a senior UX designer, but you can tell they're like very apologetic. You know, and I'm like, well, yeah. I don't care what you're called. Like, this is a safe place to ask stupid questions and to improve. You know, this is where, uh, you know, this is where we all challenge each other. So it's, it's kind of a nice blank slate because we all, when we're working in a company, we have to wear a mask, right? Uh, you know, you're like, I'm senior this or lead that or head of whatever. And like, and you have to play that role to a certain extent. And I think having safe places for education um, is a fantastic idea. Uh, you know, with that said, you know, as far as can I endorse every single student that's taken every single one of my courses, you know, like there's maybe 20, there's maybe 20%. So like say, you know, four or five people in every class where I'm so impressed with, where I'm like, I wouldn't mind if you were my boss. And like, wow, I'm really impressed. I want to see what you do. I want to stay in touch. And I actively try to stay in touch with these people. Um, and, you know, then there's like a big, like fat middle who I think will go on and like really contribute. And then there's some people who I'm kind of like, eh, like it's going to be a long road. You know, you, you don't want to paint like a dire, you know, uh, everyone's got an opportunity to, to find their place in the world. So I don't want to say there's not a place for them, but you know, you're like, it's a bit, uh, you know, I have that thought process where if like an employer would get in touch, like, would I recommend them? You know, that's, uh, depends, right? It's a big caveat. Like the, so I, it's, so I think, you know, do I endorse everyone who takes, you know, just because you shell out the money and show up, you know, like you do have to have some fundamental operating system that works. And I'm not saying it's, you know, it's some, it's not pure intelligence. It's a lot of it's your experience or your interpersonal skills or, you know, uh, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, we're dealing with complex systems of people, right? So it, it's hard to say, but, um, but on the whole, I would say in every class, there's, you know, 80 to 90% of people I can imagine going on and contributing in a meaningful way. And there's a few people who I'm like, wow, like, you know, I'm keeping track of you because I think you'll do something cool. And I just want to talk about stuff, you know, like we all have those people that you, part of it's, an object they're objectively awesome and part of it's just because you connect with them right so right. i think uh yeah so again i get so much energy out of these out of teaching these and i treat teaching as a discipline in itself it's so different from design for me and it's something that i couldn't get in the four walls of working in a business or even doing uh teaching programs at businesses so uh for me i'm like massively into it but I do understand the pitfalls and the criticism. Like I, I, I can have like a level-headed, you know, discussion and critique because I, I want to have that critique because I want it to be good. Like I don't want these institutions to disappear. I want them to start influencing like other academic institutions and businesses who want to create learning environments. Um, so I, I hope that they can actually export some of this stuff. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of where my head heads at. It's mainly positive, but I also see. <laughs> you know, I can see, I can see both sides. I mean, there's been some write up, you know, some kind of inflammatory articles about, you know, change your career in a week, you know, BS. And I'm like, yeah, that probably is BS. You know, like I'm with you on that. Yeah. Like it's a, uh, but did, did, does that yeah. mean you can't get a lot out of a week? You know, uh, probably not. Yeah. I mean, the, the other, the other angle on this, I suppose is, is right now a lot of these short courses are effectively pay they're, they're private universities. Right. And, and, there's a real conflict of interest there. Mm. They really need to be able to 
persuade students that there's an excellent outcome even if there isn't and their their interest is really uh, getting new people on the course and good outcomes out the back those people are probably never going to be customers again so right. um, and and th there's there's really no uh, oversight but uh, what I hear that the, the structure of a lot of these things are changing to actually companies and possibly even government funding shorter courses and when you I think when you get to that model then a there can be more oversight yeah. and companies will be m much more comfortable with calling BS uh, but uh, as soon as they're not trying to extract the money from the student themselves then they don't need to make the same kind of promises and the student doesn't need to make the same kind of financial commitment you know I, I, I see what you're saying and I also will provide a slight defense just to make the conversation conversation interesting because we've agreed on too much so far uh, <laughs> so I think I actually would disagree that there's not pressure on these organizations to provide outcomes. Um, I think because it's such a tight loop and a lot of them are tight communities. So, you know, for example, I have the most experience with General Assembly in London. I do most of my teaching with GA there. I've done, I've been to some of their other campuses around the world, but mainly there. And it is highly community and reputation based. And, you know, London, while it's a massive city, uh, they do feel the pressure to deliver uh, to, to kind of that the people do move on and are placed in, you know, jobs and roles that they uh, are successful in and, and that they're adding value. I think the main challenge for them and one of, a, you know, a criticism that I've had is, you know, when you operate at a certain volume. So whenever you're venture capital funded, you have a certain pressure to uh, have a certain volume. And I think that is a slippery slope, a volume of students and of revenue and all this stuff. And I think that's a challenging uh, proposition. But I will say, I think there's actually more accountability there than for traditional universities. Um, because they do have like quite a reputation to, uh, I, I think, I mean, they're, you know, they don't have like a massive foundation or endowment you know, they actually have to deliver numbers every month. And I do think people would stop signing up if no one got jobs from this stuff. So I think, mm -hmm. I think there is some accountability, but I also, so that's like probably not enough. And it's probably, you know, just starting to form and, you know, and, and ossify or kind of, uh, I think those structures of accountability like need to be created. I think that's partially maybe what you're kind of doing. Uh, if you can quantify people's skills across designers, and not just within companies, I mean that you could be taking a step towards that, which would be cool. Um, but I also think that, uh, yeah, as this makes its way into other organizations, I don't really care who, like where this education comes from. I just want it to exist. And I, right. you know, like, it's nice that they have a, enough of a price point where they can afford to pay me a certain amount, right? Like that's makes, that means I can take time out of my day to do it and out of my year to do it. Um, but I have no objections if you apply this model where it's more accessible to more people, uh, you know, whether, you know, a hybrid model online or, you know, uh, whatever. I think there's lots of different formats that people are playing around with. And I, I'm not, I'm loyal to GA because I have so many good friends there now, but I'm, uh, and I've, I've just had so many positive experiences there, but I really just want to see 
people become better designers um, and to you know like improve the way that we educate so I'm not particularly you know I don't really care what format or what company that comes in I, I, I will say though that I think there's a ton of value in community-based improvement so like I've also written a design course for a company like an online design course and that was a cool experience. It was also an exercise in like learning my limitations as a writer. Uh, I mean, it's like really hard to write like pages and pages of stuff. Uh, so that was super cool. I think it's, I'm pretty proud of it in the end, but, uh, but I also think it's really hard to create that element of community online. Just, I suppose very briefly, if you look at completion rates of online courses, they're very, very low. Even, even the paid ones, you know, 2% two, two completion rates and things like that. So, so I think that that probably is that that's good data to to persuade that actually the power of and in fact a lot of the people that I talked to when I was asking about outcomes from from these courses was it almost didn't matter what the curriculum was it was more about us all doing it together and having a support network so I think that all bears out I think you're right and there's there's almost it's almost worth it's worth the money just to have spent the money and have that forcing mechanism of having spent money. So what's interesting, an interesting thought experiment is if all these courses become free, will completion rates go down dramatically as people don't have anything to lose when they drop out? So uh, I suppose we'll, we'll wrap up, but if, if you are listening and uh, any of the things that we've talked about have struck a chord with you, then we'll probably put this up on Anchor. So if you're listening on Anchor, there's a way for you to actually submit a question. If you want to join our community, if you want to join the kind of progression community, then uh, you can go to bit.ly slash progression dash chat. I'll put that in, the, I'll put that link somewhere. And um, really also uh, feedback on the things we've talked about, but also feedback on the podcast itself, everything from technical audio quality, things like that to structure and is there something that we should be talking about that we're not.